along the summer house. And the great house of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall perish. It's an ominous passage. And God means every bit of that ominousness that you sense as we just wandered through the past three days. Serious time. Get the sense when you reach out to pray that God is not happy with his people. Do you? Not? Is that obvious? Not happy with people. Now, I use the term his people somewhat loosely, as you know. Not all Israel is Israel, but yet all of Israel is God's what? Covenant or chosen people. It's interesting as we, again, we're just going to wander through the text. It's interesting. First of all, just generally speaking, it breaks down into a couple different sections. First, the declaration of what, what's going on, the, 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 the condemnation, as it were, the reason for the condemnation. And then that's verse 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 8 is that series of questions that you saw. Someone, some could argue, and I think it's probably right, that it's, it's causing the hearer to realize the reason for the condemnation. And then in um, 9 through the end of the chapter, I think Jared here is what's going to happen. Before we get to the actual meeting out of judgment, you have verses 9 through 11, um, but actually 9 through 9 is the end of the, what we call the calling of leaders. What's going on? We're going to develop that a little further. Generally speaking, when we read through Amos chapter 3, I'm going to give a big overarching perspective. What you're really looking at is what you can describe in the court case. The judge is on his throne, evidence is being brought, Amos is going to bring the evidence. God, through Amos, is going to give the declaration of justice will be no doubt. That's the point of the So very much kind of a courtroom legal proceeding that's going on here. It is interesting, start off, starting off in chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word uh, that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, stop right there. Just notice this, when you go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see over and over again that phrase, right? Thus, what? Says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. It's a generic statement, but it's it's a statement of condemnation every step of the way. Things change at the beginning of chapter 3 when he says, Hear this word. He's speaking through Amos to the people of Israel. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children, O people of Israel. Well, up to this point in time, the Lord has been talking about a people. Now he's speaking to a people. If you understand the, the, the subtle but important difference, that's one of the reasons why we, we tend to think that there's a corporate uh, thing going on here. Hear this word that the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Now we need to stop right here and remember we are speaking, we are reading a story about God's covenant people. God has cut a covenant with them. And we're going to see it more clearly in just a few moments. No longer speaking about pagan nations. He's speaking about his people. And that brings me to our first aid in understanding. Do not fall into the trap. Please do not fall into the trap 
of saying, this is Israel, this has nothing to do with us or the church or me personally. Don't fall into the trap. To say that is to invite what? Ah, to invite judgment on yourself. To not see this as referencing us as well is crucial that we understand that is not the case. God was very good, when I put it this way, He was very good at His communication. What I mean by that is, if He didn't want people to know about it other than a, a few isolated people, guess who found out about it? Just a few isolated people. For example, if I'm going to use an example of the New Testament, it is absolutely sure, this is just an aside, but an example, it is absolutely sure that Paul wrote at least three letters in the Corinthians. Some would argue he wrote four. I take that position. Three or four books or letters Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. How many do we have? Two. You know why? It's simple, because God didn't want to know about three or four. It's really kind of simple. He wanted the Corinthian church to have all three or four. He didn't want the church generic to have all three or four. But he did want the church to have first and second Corinthians. And guess what? We have first and second Corinthians. And by the way, if you're wondering why, why people say there's three or four, because in First and Second Corinthians there is evidence that that there's other things going on that are already written about that aren't written in First Corinthians. So that's the idea. Um, so be that as may, it's very important that we acknowledge that this is a letter to the people of Israel. At the same time, we must acknowledge two things. Number one, God has chosen that this book would remain to this day. Which means there's something in here for us. Number one. Number two, there's no question we must not miss it. That the scriptures do describe us as what? Who are spiritual Israel. Very important. Very important. We always keep that back in our mind. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. And then he develops this point. For people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up in the land of Israel. Now we saw it in the last week, in the last message, in the last chapter, this point of God's mercy. God is putting his mercy on display in past times toward the current people in Amos' day, their ancestors as well as themselves. Why do the people of Israel exist? They certainly don't deserve to, do they? I mean, all we have to do is go back a few generations and we find out what? God, God's plan for the people, or God's goal for the people, is that they remain one united nation, right? So what happened? They split in two. That, that's, not, that's not what God says in the scriptures. They split in two. And then from there, all you have to do is read the history of Israel, the ten of the tribes, right here. There were no good kings. They were all in rebellion. They all despised the law of God. And you know what the people did? They followed them. They followed them. And so God, once again, put on display mercy here. 
hear this word that the Lord Yahweh has spoken against you. Very important phrase, by the way, against you. Set up the whole, whole storyline in chapter 3. This is an against you passage. And it's important that we remember, right? It's against his covenant people. God Yahweh is speaking against his covenant people. The people of Israel against the whole family that had brought up out of the land of Egypt. And obviously he's referencing the Exodus, correct? He's the one who did all that. Every step of the way, he's the one who opened the Red Sea. He's the one who brought the plagues. He's the one who rescued them and killed the Egyptian army. He's the one who cut the covenant at Mount Sinai. He's the one who provided for them. On and on and on. He took them out of, and the most important thing, he took them out of slavery. Verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your enemies. Verse 2 is what sets up the whole story of chapter 3. You'll notice a couple things. You only have I known, the very first line. You only have I known. Two very strong implications. Number one, no one else he knows. Which, by the way, has some pretty strong New Testament implications, doesn't it? I never knew you. There's a pretty strong, this word no is a very strong Old and New Testament implication. Out of all the families of the earth, referencing all the different nations, out of all the families of the earth, only you have I known. Another way to put this is only you have we been true family? We call them a family so all the rest of them But only you have I been family that I know. That I've been intimate with, that I that I had intimate relationships with. Since I'm going. Now, if we stop on that, verse the first half of verse two. By itself is an amazing thing. Out of all the nations of the earth, Israel, only you. Put it in the modern day. Out of all the people of the earth, if you're a safe person, I would say, out of all the people of the earth, only you, truly saved people, are talking about. Correct? All the nations, sovereign, merciful God, righteous God, holy God, and I'm not. That's stunning, isn't it? Okay, maybe not. Isn't that stunning? That should blow us away, shouldn't it? I mean, if that doesn't get you to jump up and down and be like, yes and amen, something's wrong. Right? You know what the problem is with Israel's faith? It got full of things. It was kind of lost. The implications of it were kind of lost. Or kind of trivialized. Or kind of marginalized. So 
You still went to the synagogues. As we talked about in previous weeks, they still did all the religious rituals, the religious rites. But the import of it all, the beauty of it all, the value of it all, the true desperation of it all, the true reality of the love of God. It was lost. What do you mean by it's lost? They would certainly not have said, oh yeah, yeah, that's what it's about. No, what was lost was not the fact What was lost was the life-changing nature of That's lost. Maybe it was in fact, it probably did. But the transformation as the result of the truth was not there. Well, here's what's really powerful about chapter 2. He's, or verse 2, I'm sorry. It says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will what? Punish you for all your iniquities. Study the Savior. Of all the families of the earth, I've only known you. You would think. Especially in chapter 1 and 2. If you were an Israel this day, an Israelite, you would think, that's right, we have a special position. Yep, that's right. We stand in a different place. We have a different relationship. We have a relationship with God. Yep, He loves us, even though we've forgotten the implication of all that. That's really transformed them. Worship is just ritualistic, not true worship. They're certainly not transformed and caught up with their God. And so, what does he say? Because I've known you, in effect, what are we saying? Because I've known you, it don't get a pass. That's what he's saying. Because I've known you, no pass for you. What a jar You see, I would suspect that Israel fell into two camps, and most of them probably had both camps in them. The one is the ritual, religious rituals or rites that they were doing. They're doing stuff for the second for basic Jewishness. They were doing the stuff. Number two, at the same time, according if, if you connect the first half of two and the second half of two, you come with this idea that most of them, certainly we know that historically this was the case, that most of them had the idea we're God's covenant people, therefore, what? Good to go. God is blessed. God is to say, you're presuming upon me. You are. If you're presuming upon my goodness, and you are, and if you think that somehow religious ritual and rites, practicing the rites of religion, somehow 
will give you a pass so that you will just receive the goodness of God. If you think that, you've got something new coming. Now let me just pause on that for a second. Because we need to bring all the New Testament together here. And there is something that's radically different, Old Testament and New Testament. God is a, a God of justice, is he not? Right? God is a God of wrath, is he not? God is also a God of mercy, isn't he? And a God of grace, isn't he? Let me go on with that. But you get the idea. I just touched two different sides. Here he says that he's bringing punishment. Does that make sense? You only might know in all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquity. Now, it's important we pause on this one for a second, because there's several things we need to understand. First of all, Old and New Testament things, things have changed here. Amos was written before Christ. And specifically before Christ's death and resurrection. So when he says to the Jews in the Old Testament here, the Israelites in the Old Testament, I will punish all your iniquities, three and four, I will punish all your iniquities, he literally means punish. And if you come through and work away through this text, punishment is punishment here. And it's really important to understand that those he punishes, he's punishing for the most part because they are, even though they're covenantal people, that is, they are in the covenant, they are people who are not what? Ultimately, saved people. Not. They're not saved people. They're just like the, the Jews who wandered the wilderness and died without entering their rest. Clearly, we saw in Hebrews, rest is referencing entering into glory. It's a picture of entering into glory. And although we know there are exceptions, exhibit A, a backup, right? He died in the midst of the Assyrian attack that is being prophesied here. But very different. He died rejoicing in God as Savior. He loved his life. He was not being punished, he was just experiencing the Consequences of the nation, national discipline, national punishment, in the Old Testament. But things have changed because what happened at the cross was God took the wrath that we see a glimpse of in this text and in the story of Assyria coming down to Israel in, in 722 BC. That's a glimpse of it, but it's just a glimpse. When Christ died on the cross, he received the full bend of God's wrath. He received the full bend, by the way, put it, he received the full bend of what? According to what the scriptures say in the New Testament, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, and the resulting resurrection as well, because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, the result is that for believers who for true believers, there is no more punishment, condemnation. There is no more. However, that begs the question, doesn't it? We can't jump too quickly to that one. 
We really can't. We must not. What does he say? Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, correct? You know what the implication of that is? If you're not being disciplined, you're, you tell someone you're not a son. But if you're not being disciplined, that doesn't mean you want to be skated free. If you don't receive discipline, it means you will receive punishment. So we've got to, we've got to see a complete picture here. Punishment is still to be meted out to those who are not God's true children. When we go back to Old Testament, Amos today, there's a whole lot of people who think they're God's chosen people, but they're not. Not all Israel is Israel, they're going faithful remnant. And the storyline is complete, Old Testament, New Testament, that is still the same. Not all church is church, but God preserves a faithful remnant. Punishment is still there. And I would argue it's there for the same reason. Because these people have rejected their God. They didn't think they had. But they were just playing on the edges. Does that make sense? They're just playing on the edges. Go to, to Hebrews again. And what do we introduce to? We introduce to people who are playing around the edges, aren't they? They're playing around the edges by doing what? They're tasting of the good aren't they? Heart. They have a hard heart. And I know what, what happened to those people according to Hebrews. You know, judgment. What's judgment? Punishment. He's writing to the church. The implication throughout the New Testament is there's a whole lot of people in church who are not heaven bound. There's a whole lot of church that's not heaven bound. So the, the, the point is still the same. Now, one other thing I would say for those who are truly God's children, can I just submit to you that we do get discipline. We do. We don't ever fall into the trap of saying, well, that's a child, and so I expect you to do Oh, yeah, you will, but not as you define this is foolishness. Not your happiness. Not your comfort. Not your ease. Not your riches. Not anything. Holiness. Holiness is primarily referencing glory and being satisfied. And you know that the scripture that will never make itself a Sometimes I was stated, sometimes God's discipline. Sometimes God's discipline is really painful. Sometimes God's discipline is, to direct it from Scripture, grievous. The other thing is discipline. But I feel the interest on righteousness. If there's no people who are righteousness being revealed via the difficulties, even grievous difficulties, that includes primarily glorying in Christ and being satisfied with Christ, 
and just being blown away by me. But God says, despite the fact that you think that somehow a religious ritual is going to be, and so you're doing it, and despite the fact that you think that because you're a covenant person, that God isn't going to bring calamity on you, let's back the horses up a bit. Basically, what Isaiah says, I'm sorry, David says, you totally missed the point. So, in this courtroom scene, I'm going to be able to say, I'm going to show you how far you've missed the point. At which point kind of moves into three through nine and presents these questions. Here we go. Your two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. First question, verse three. There are two possible meanings in this text. I think both are right. There's also a third possible meaning of the text that most people hold is absolutely wrong. So let me give you the, the absolutely wrong one first, and then we'll get the right one. I've heard this passage preached and taught on for years, and quoted for years, and it usually references horizontal relationships. If you've got evil people that you've made best friends, it says something about you. Because you chose to be with them. Two cannot walk together unless they agree. That's what the text says, right? So it seems like it makes sense. So, for example, if a safe person or a non-safe person, this is one of the right here about the time, safe person or a non-safe person falls on an unsafe person and puts someone else's warning and say, wait, two can't walk together unless they agree. We know he or she can't agree with God because they're lost. Therefore, you must have agreed with person A. The girl you're crazy about, or the guy you're crazy about, and it says something about you. Because you can't walk together unless you agree. Now that statement probably is true. Does that make sense? It's probably true. I gotta say, well, definitely true. How do we fall in love with the enemy? That being said, that's not what the text is talking about. And the reason why I emphasize that is because we missed the true import. When he says here in verse 3, two cannot walk together unless they've agreed to meet. He's talking not about horizontal to horizontal, person to person. He's talking about in context, two different things. The near context of verses 1 and 2. When he says two cannot walk together unless they've agreed to meet, what's he referencing? He's referencing the God who brought them out of Egypt. He reached out to them. Two cannot walk together unless they be agreed. Well, God's not changing, is he? God is God, is God, is God, is God, forever. So if they're not agreeing with him, make sense? If they're not agreeing with him anymore, if they're not, and, 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 and understand what he's talking about. When he says, two cannot walk together unless they be agreed, God tells us throughout Old Testament and New Testament why he saved the Jews in the Old Testament and why he saved us today. Correct? He tells us in both cases for what? His warning. That's why he saves people. Old New Testament, nothing has changed. He saves people to bring glory, praise, honor, recognition, fame to him. Make sense? Two cannot 
walk together unless they be agreed. Well, God's statement is, I'm saving people for my glory. If you claim to be a, an Israelite and therefore part of the covenant, but well, you don't agree with that, and functionally you're not glorying in him and, and, and reveling in him and finding your satisfaction in him and finding he to be all in all, guess who's not walking with him? He hasn't changed. The Israelites have changed. What he's trying to do is trying to show the Israelites, you say you're a child of the king. You say that you are a child of the covenant. You're not. That's the point. Because two cannot walk together Now, please understand, Old Testament, New Testament, you know what that means? It's not that they do better. What it means is, if, if you are a child, a true child of the covenant. Guess who's working in you? The Spirit's working in you, and you're being transformed. A lot of times, people have lead a dramatic, dramatic separation in the Old Testament that the Spirit wasn't working. That he clearly was at work in the Old Testament. He clearly was. Well, there are differences in Old Testament. He's clearly at work. For example, salvation is always implied by grace and faith alone. And if it took the spirit to transform someone and bring them from death to life, or be saved. And be spiritual Israel, as it were. Two cannot walk together unless they be agreed. The evidence is really clear in Israel's case that they may claim as long as they want that they are a covenant person, and they may be doing all the religious rituals that they want. The simple reality is they're not glorying. The king. They're not enthralled with their king. They're not enthralled with Yahweh, which means they're not walking with him. And if, 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 if a people is not walking with their redeemer, Yahweh, their rescuer, and I use redeemer very quickly, did you have any talking about? Didn't he rescue them? Didn't he redeem them? Out of Egypt. He clearly redeemed them out of slavery. But you can't miss the point, by the way, that out of slavery in Egypt is probably one of the most dramatic pictures of salvation you can find in the entire Old Testament. Did you walk together unless they have agreed to me? The obvious answer is what? No. They only are in agreement, that's why they walk together. So obviously they're not walking in which means what? They're not in agreement. They're banging on God's mercy, but they're trying to ignore his justice. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way in the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way in the New Testament. It doesn't work anywhere. It never worked at any time. That's the first question. Oh, and, I'm sorry. And the other, the other um, understanding of this, the other meaning of this, because two, the two walk here unless they come to an agreement to meet, is if you work away from the text, we'll come a little bit later, and we're introduced to the writer's book, who is Amos. Amos is, help me out, is he in agreement to walk or is he not in agreement to walk with God? He's clearly in agreement to walk with God. And as a result of that, he's doing what? He's calling the people to repentance. It's a great picture. 
What does it look like to be in agreement and walk? Well, it looks like Amos. It looks like Amos doing what? Calling people to repentance. It looks like Amos saying, Thus saith the Lord. It looks like Amos saying, This is what God says to you. It looks like. But it looks like it's not. It looks like doing religious rituals, practicing religious rites, selling animals in the Old Testament, sacrificing, going to the temple, synagogue, going to the ends, going to push up the shell. By and large, the covenant itself is made very little at that end of the day. Because God is making the end of the day. They would never call it that. They would shake it at anyone that they said it was rebellion. It was absolutely And it still is. Nothing has changed. It still is rebellion. The truth of God, what he revealed, barely made me think. The two walk together, but that's the other Then he goes on from there with another series of questions. Verse 4 Does the lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does the young lion cry out from the den when he's taken nothing? Or if he's taken nothing? The answer is obvious. No. Now, some people have said, well, yeah, but lions roar sometimes and they're hanging out with other lions and they'll roar at each other, you know, establishing a hierarchy. True, absolutely. The point of the argument is in hunting. In hunting. Does a lion roar if he's caught nothing yet? Well, obviously not. Ken, you and I are hunters. We're not lions. Um, but we're both hunters. When we go up the tree stand during deer season, do you uh, carry speakers with you to play music while you're up there? Do you read a book out loud? Do you holler across other hunters and you say, hey, how you doing? Is anything yet? <laughs> Why not? Scare the prey away. Of course a lion doesn't. We're more stupid than lions. They're not really good, you know. Um, but of course, a lion doesn't. Yeah, they get something, and once they get it, they what? They roar. Once they catch it, they roar. A young lion is dead. Same thing. An adult, a big adult, a young lion, not a cub. A young lion does he roar if he has a bite in it? No, and by the way, a little hint, a little subtle hint in here, he's not in his den. Why is he in his den? Because his tummy's full. If his tummy's empty, he's not in his den roaring. He's out being really quiet stealthy. Looking to find something to eat. Actually, he's looking for prayer. Two part here unless they agree to me? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey, or does a young lion crowd in his den and take nothing? The obvious answer again is no. Verse 5. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Of course not. It would be really stupid if a bird, just play the illustration, if a bird can talk, you see a bird on the ground, 
like, what are you doing on the ground? Oh, well, I got caught. Nothing holds me there. Yeah, I got caught. No, there's nothing there. Really, there's nothing there. See? Pick the bird up, go up in the air, go back down the ground, because they're not caught. That's stupid. And that's the that's, that's what famous point. How ludicrous it is. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Obviously not. Continue in verse 5. Does the snare spring up from the ground when it's taken nothing? There's got to be something triggers it, right? It doesn't spring up for no reason. Verse 6. Is a trumpet blowing the city and the people are not afraid? Now we start getting a bigger picture. Does a trumpet blow in the city? Now obviously today this doesn't count. Because we don't blow trumpets in the city. For purposes like they did that. Does a trumpet blow in the city and no one is afraid? The obvious answer is no. When a trumpet blows the city, everyone is afraid. Why? What? Because we get hacked. Because the enemy is at the gates. They just got surprised by something. They're getting ready to be invaded. Ah, trumpet blows. And the point is, the call is to go to the to the wall to protect your city, but you're at risk of life. Everybody's afraid. It only makes sense. Now, before we get into the end of verse 6, let me just say this. But Amos is trying to get across to the people of Israel with this. You two walk together and say, agree to me? Well, no. The problem is, people haven't agreed. They've lost their agreement. There's a lion born of the forest and he has no prey. Well, no, of course not. When he's hungry, he's stealthy and hunts. But for the children of Israel, they're hungry. So they were warring and they were like, oh, they think like he's doing Think everything's going to be right. Remember, we said when we first met Abraham, we said that for Amos, Amos was doing great, right? Financially, it, it probably is a pinnacle of, of the tenor of the tribes at this point for prosperity and nothing else. We don't realize how good they are. We don't realize how anorexic they are. They're roaring away, they're not roaring away. Does a bird fall into it in a snare on the earth and there's no trap for it? No, of course not. No, nothing springs up. No trap springs up and there's nothing there to catch it. And yet, Israel is incoherent as possible. What's happening? They're in snares on the earth. They're in snare. But at this point in time, they're not snared by anything that God's brought, right? But they're ensnared by what? All the lies, all the idolatry. They're ensnared by things that are nothing. They're ensnared by all the high places, but they're nothing. In comparison to God, the true trap's coming. Does that make sense? Jumping down to verse 6, again, is it coming to the city and the people are not afraid? Well, of course not. The people are afraid. What's Amos? <laughs> the prophet Amos is the trumpet. You know what? 
period of division. Except in the modern day. Read the scriptures. I just throw this out here. Read the scriptures. You hear a word from God and the word of God and you read it. And we close the book and we are reflected. We come to church, we hear the word, if the word be preached accurately, it would come away too often, friends, and we are what? The trumpet is being played. Nothing has changed. The trumpet is being played. It's been played for thousands of years. It's being played as we read the scriptures when we do. It's being played as we hear the message from the word of the Lord. Preach. This one's jacket. Big qualifier. And we remain unafraid, unmoved, untransformed. And we think that we're okay. Nothing has changed. We come to, if I must use the example too often, we come to church, we hear the word of God preached, we sing, at least here at, at Redeeming Grace, we sing some amazing songs. You may not like the tunes, but there's some rich theology in the songs we sing. We leave, and don't think our mind is flat. Aim. Food. Relaxation, it's job stepping around the house, hanging with friends, and we do it week after week after week after month after year, and for many of us after decades. And we're, the trumpet is played over and over and over, and we remain unafraid. Now people will say, yeah, but Steve, we are grace-receiving, redeemed people. We don't need to be afraid of God. Really? Really? Old Testament, New Testament, God tells us to blank the Lord. Fear the Lord. It's clear. Old Testament, you can't miss the word. If people have even corrupted that, say, well, that just means reverence. No, it doesn't. It's part of it. In part of the equation of the If you don't believe it, can I just ask you a real quick question? If you're a child and your parents said, Your dad comes home. Your mom said, Your dad comes home. What do you think it can be? Would you not a little afraid? You have to discipline your child. She knows it's coming. And she's like, cool, hey dad. Well, she's here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you're the trumpet in your family, then, right? You're the trumpet, and she's what? Afraid. Does that make sense? Can I ask you a question, man? You let me die? Like, you die for her? You don't hate her, you don't control her, not her. Does that make sense? Don't miss the point that God calls the child of God. Doesn't he? Repeatedly? 
But the trumpet keeps on being proclaimed. And somehow we think we're so important. And somehow we think that, that we're still good to go. Somehow at this late game, we still have this idea in our minds that I got my ticket for the train to go on. There's no awe. There's no thrill. There's no, no reverence. There's no literal fear. There's no desire in the glory of God. There's no, there's very little of any proclamation. Only not. Both other believers and both believers. It doesn't think we're okay. No. It doesn't make any sense for the trumpet plays. There's no fear. Ever. It doesn't make any sense. If there's no fear, that's absolute rebellion. I remember a time. My mom was just here. She wouldn't even remember that. I remember a time when mom was really bad. And she went and spent me. The last time I went up there. And as she spent me, you know what I did? I laughed at her. You know what I thought that one time? I thought I found her. She never disciplined me again when she spent me. When was my friend I realized all I did was spend me right there? But, there's paradigm that grows in the depths. Now, we would never do it. We would Christians, we would never stop that. Isn't that what we're doing? Isn't that exactly what we're doing when, when, when the trumpet blows and we go burn the wall? In theory. So it's a huge illustration. How does that happen at the trumpet? We're at minimum, we're minimalizing it, right? And excusing it in the Kind of like being in a in a building, a little office building, and fire alarm goes off. And nobody moves. Oh, nobody's sitting around laughing. But they just keep working. Ever happened at, at, at the office that the fire alarm goes off and up? Everybody just keep working, right? Unless somebody comes up and says, you guys gotta leave. Everybody keep working, right? Uh, what are we saying? It's no big deal, it's just a it's just a test. Or the fire alarm goes down. Right? Is that what we're saying? Isn't that just a form of laughing at it? Is that what it is? God's word is proclaimed. You can read his word and then sing it in some experience and song and you just Verse 6 concludes by saying, Does the disaster, does the disaster come to the scene? The answer to that is what? No. Disaster comes upon the city is what? It's because of the Lord doing it. It only is because of the Lord doing it. Does the disaster come on it unless it? No, it only does it if, if the Lord does it. Because he's who? He's the sovereign God. He's the one in control. He's the one that's, that's in authority. So if disaster comes upon the city, playing off of the illustration of developing here in verse 6, let's when the trumpet blows, because disaster is approaching, well, even that disaster is by God. Well, the trumpet is approaching, Amos is saying, or the trumpet is blasting because 
The danger is coming, and that danger is from God. I guarantee you this, back to number six. I guarantee you this, friends, when the disaster crashed on the shore in 722 BC, Verse 7. For the Lord does nothing without revealing it, revealing his secrets to his servant, the prophet. That situation doesn't mean anything, anything. In context, it's talking about anything calamitous to his children, to his covenant people. The declaration is God, the Lord God, does nothing calamitous to his covenant people without revealing his secrets with regard to the calamity that's coming to his prophets. That is going to flow back up into verses 3 through 6. But it continues, and he says what? The lion has warned. Who is he referring to? Well, he's referring to God, and, and it's referring to God and his prophets. It's specifically Amos, as well as the other prophets as well. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? I mean, it's only going to make sense. Except reality is what we did. The lion has roared. And the implication of the lion has roared means what? He's gotten his prey. He's, Amos is saying to Israel, you've already been caught. The lion has already caught you. In the midst of everything you see that says life is good, you are caught. The lion has roared. If that's true, I mean, I don't know if you ever heard this week about that guy that killed a lion, a mountain lion out west, out in Colorado, he was running and a mountain lion jumped on him. He got torn up pretty bad, but he actually killed a mountain lion, an eight pound mountain lion, not a big one, but eight pound mountain Big enough, right? He got torn up pretty good. I suspect that mountain lion was on scratching him. Amos is saying, you're still not afraid? You're still not afraid? Well, you don't feel the claws yet. You're not experiencing the teeth yet. The Lord God has spoken, referring back to verse 7. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Which is a very interesting statement. Because Amos is one who's walking together, verse 3, right? Walking together with God. So, he's walking with God. God speaks. The result is he what? He what? He must prophesy. He must speak. God has spoken, therefore I must speak. And it's not, well, the law says i got to speak. No, it's because they're walking together. That he finds himself impelled by the Spirit to do what? Speak. 
Now, that's the first implication of the text. Amos is saying, wait a second. God has spoken. Who's the prophesy? This is so full of irony. Because the people are called the covenant people, the people of God. And we must understand that if God has spoken, the absolute obvious thing that should happen is that every single one of the people, the children of God, should be speaking. See, prophesy isn't, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, it's very important to be different. He didn't say, God has spoken, who can but be a prophet? That's how he said Did he? Doesn't say that, does it? In any translation here, does it say, who can but be a prophet? No. Who can prophesy? Who can prophesy? What is prophecy? We think about prophecy as being just talking about the future. That's very little of the prophet's ministry. The prophet's primary purpose is to say, God has said this. You need to repent. God has spoken. If you are truly people walking with God, how can you do anything but speak? You know what he just said? He just threw down the gauntlet. In the end of verse 7, it's a gigantic gauntlet for the children of God. I don't care if you're part of Old Testament, New Testament. Are you in rebellion? Here's a great text. Has God spoken? Pretty clear, right? Are you speaking? If the answer as you look at your life, is no, you're in rebellion. You're, you're digging around with verses 3 through 7, and you're answering them all wrong. You're thinking, I'm walking with them, but you're not. You're thinking, the line for but you have. You're thinking, that you're not caught, but you are in the great snare. The trumpets proclaiming, not. God has spoken. It goes on to verse 9, now everything changes. Proclaim to the strongholds of Ashdod and to the strongholds of the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria, see the great tumult within her, and the oppressed in her mind out of her midst. Just stop at verse 9 real quick. He mentions Ashdod and Egypt. Interesting that he's single quote throughout. Proclaimed Ashdod, the strongholds of Ashdod, proclaimed the strongholds of Egypt. We know Egypt, right? It's the south and west of, of Israel. The other side of the Red Sea. Are they covenant, God's covenant people or are they not? No, they're not God's covenant people. Ashdod may not be as familiar to you, but it is, uh, it is where, where uh, one of the five cities of who? Are they God's covenant people or are they not? No, they're not. God, as typical of ancient Near East, 
um, not just with Israel and, and God's communication with people, but all the countries and nations you're able to do this, they always call, call witnesses to the situation. And God does the same thing many times, call witnesses to the, the condemnation. Here, the implication is that the children of Israel are so evil. They're so ignoring the rebellion of God. God turns his own children to people who witnesses with regard to the mess that was in the covenant peoples. Does it ever change? I just want to ask you a question. Does it ever drive you crazy? Does it ever frustrate you when people that are unsaved say nasty, belligerent, hateful things about Christians? Does it ever bother you? Can I tell you something? How do you know that it's not God? Because God causes things, right? How do you know it's not God, God causing these people to speak? And ridicule and mock. If you just slow down and think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? The Christians are talking about else, I think, scripture is telling us to God. It's scary when he's. We've used illustrations, but people aren't listening to the prophets. So he witnesses witnesses who? The non covenant people that they're witnessing about in this trial, they're witness to the mass of the rebellion that's coming. Perhaps with their fear, they think what they're saying had some They're unsafe people. They're probably get a whole lot of things wrong. I get that. But can I just say this real quick? If God can use Balaam's ass, he can use unsafe people. Can he? He absolutely can. We just write him off. We just write him off. He's belligerent and hateful and hurtful for Christians. We just write him off. Whoa! Back it up. Maybe. Maybe. Have more truth than you think. Maybe we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Maybe we need to receive it, hear it. Maybe these people who are condemned, punishment, are at the same time being used as a mouthpiece for God. Does that make sense? That's exactly what he's doing in the Old Testament. So he calls to the Philistines. They're not good people, are they? He calls to the Egyptians, the very people who kept him in slavery for 14 years, for, I'm sorry, 400 years. Those are the people he calls to bear witness. Come and assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. He's not calling them to invade. Assyria, of course, he got invaded. These are just witnesses. Stop yourself in the mouth of Samaria and see the great tumult within her. See the oppressors come in. See how people have been shooting and abusing each other and all the mess, all the distractions, all the garbage that is in my country's place. The things that are not visible to my country. Come and see. They don't. They don't see it. So you, 
come and see Verse 10 makes that really clear. God's covenant people, what does it say? They do not know how to do right, declared the Lord. Do right how? With one another, caring for it, loving one another in their case. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in strongholds, they're mistreating one another. Now, don't fall into the trap and say, well, I don't mistreat anybody else, so they're just going to me. This is just situation specific for them. The point is, they were practicing religious ritual and depending upon things that wasn't true. And they were living life separated from what God declared. Separated from who God is. And by the way, if you think this is an isolated thing in verse 10 about they do not know how to do it right, remind you, Jeremiah said what? The people. He said, the people of, of Israel, the Judah, he said, please look up in the sky. See the birds? In the fall, they form up and they go south. They don't receive them. And in the spring, they form up and they come north. It's all migration. They know their seasons. And he says, look at the ocean. Look at the waters. The water goes to boundaries. How do you live there? I've heard many people argue, well, that's possible. I know. People went there, she's gone. They go to their house where they should have built them. Called the 100 year flood plain, we call it. They let it build their house where they should have kept. God has declared the water to be not. They know the boundaries of the process. Don't say that. Don't say people go to people. And enjoy same idea. Every fall, the birds form up and go south. Every spring, they come north. Why do they do that? Because that's what God commanded them to do. That's the point of Jeremiah. And they know God's command and they fulfill it. They fulfill it. Of all my created beings, only my Verse 11, therefore, in light of all that, in this part of the in light of all that, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround me and bring down your defenses from me. And your strongholds shall be punished. You saved up that strongholds is referencing back in the previous section, um, the previous verses. It says, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to be right for the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery can turn into what? In their strongholds. God says, right here in verse 11, the defenses are going to come down, which references the trumpet being right? And nobody's afraid. The defenses are going to come down, and all your strongholds, the place where you store it up, all the things you store it up for yourself, what's going to happen to them? Gone. Gone. <laughs> best you can do will be in the instant of your life. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion, two things, very sarcastic here. Anyways, does as a shepherd rescues the mouth from the mouth of the lion, two legs, or a piece of an ear. Quite the rescue, huh? Lion got the sheep, and he rescues two legs or an ear. That's real valuable. 
so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria congratulate you. And then he takes it even from at least at least two legs you can maybe get a small meal out of, right? I don't want you to do it here. But at least two legs you do get a meal out of. In Samaria, they'll be rescued as well. It'll be looking like a corner of a couch or a park. That shows how severe the punishment is process. Here, he testifies against the house of Jacob, declared the Lord God. The Lord of the God of hosts, what hosts mean? God of hosts means what? God of armies. Almost always is calamity coming. On that day, I will I punish Israel for its transgression. I will punish the altars of Bethel. This is interesting. He says, I, when I come with my armies, Lord of hosts, God of hosts, I am going to punish the people. He's already said that. But he's also going to punish the what? The altars of Bethel. Bethel means, anybody know? The house of God. So the idea, because he used the word altars plural and house of God, he's probably referencing Bethel the name, but in referencing that, he's talking about not only the an altar that's maybe for, for Yahweh, but all the altars. And the implication being, I don't care what God you worship, what God you're playing your, your religious rites with, your religious rituals with. If you're playing religious rituals with another God, or you're playing with Yahweh, it's all going to be taken away. The implication in ancient Near East is when your altars are gone, your God is at best against you. And then he goes on. <coughs> And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. In the Old Testament, that's a huge statement. If the horns of the altar, because the altar would have four horns on each corner. And typically in the, in the other gods' worship areas, they had this, and in and, and altar in God's time, in God's temple, there were there horns on the altar. What was the point of the horns? The point of the horns is very important and yet symbolic. Because if something... Let's say I accidentally killed Charles. I can rush, and the picture would be I can rush to the temple and I can grab the horns of the altar. And the idea of grabbing the horns of the altar was the idea of sanctuary. That was the picture. What he's trying to say, the horns of the altar were cut off. You what then? No sanctuary. There is no safe place for you, Israel. When the enemy comes, that I'm ordaining, there is no escape. At that point in time, it is too late. Verse 15, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. It's very it's interesting that in that day they had winter and summer houses. They're up in Samaria where it's cold in the winter, warm in the summer, they had two different houses. That is, at least the rule of it. And it's a picture of prosperity, gentlemen. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And, and in archaeological, by the way, archaeological dates, we have discovered that they did a lot of ivory laid in their furniture and houses. 
but very important, and it is a picture of wealth and prosperity. And the house of ivory, yeah, the house of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to them. Now, in a little bit, chapter 5, we're going to get to the point where we start to, start to see numbers. The point there is none. The point of the text of Amos is not, hey, there's a lot of hope here for you. The point in the book of Amos chapter 3 is this. It's very simple. There is no hope. Now, later on, I'll be presenting all of our methods in chapter 5. So the call of the text is for the reader and the hearer to ask themselves. It's really quite simple to ask ourselves a little bit. Is my life in a growing way, Lord in Christ, thrilled through him, worshiping? Am I the one who find myself absolutely more and more proclaim the word of God? Because it's great and amazing love. Am I being transformed? Are the things on this earth going to go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? And if not, the call is in the